Well, you know, there's a quote that I love from C.S. Lewis. This is Dr. Kelsey Crow. I see them as they approach me, waiting to ask how I'm doing. I hate it when they do, and I hate it when they don't. The author wrote a memoir called A Grief Observed Following the Death of His Wife from Cancer. And while most of us are familiar with his famous children's books, in another circle, one that Kelsey knows from all angles, it's his memoir that resonates most powerfully. Kelsey is an expert in the heartbreaking times that we all experience and how we deal with them, the good ways and the terrible ways. And today on the first of a two-part special of The Resilient, she will guide us through exactly what to do when something awful happens to someone we love so we can do more help than harm. This is The Resilient from flowerapp.com. Bad news. Unfortunately, it happens to us all. And for many of us, finding the right thing to say when someone we know has been struck by something awful is difficult. It can lock down conversations and break down communication. As the saying goes, grief can rearrange the address book. And so, to preserve the sanctity of relationships, Kelsey says we should draw on empathy. Empathy is an intellectual exercise where you try to imagine what it might be to be in that situation. That is the uncomfortable space where most people who want to offer support exist. But we're in a terrible bind as empathy givers. It feels impossible to calibrate our empathy gauges in the appropriate way. Do we sympathize? Apologize? Ask questions? It's true that grievers for any kind of difficulty that we're going through are fickle, mercurial creatures, and we can't always be pleased. And the question, how are you, for example, at one time can make us bristle, and the silence about our condition can do the same. The answer lies in Kelsey's book. There are no words for this, what to say and do when life is scary, awful, and unfair to people you love which she wrote with artist Emily McDowell. It's based on more than a decade of Kelsey's research and features Emily's uncompromising artistic style, which she honed during her own time in chemotherapy, and which has become a successful series of greeting cards called empathy cards. In my conversation with Kelsey, I learned that the experience of grief is part of a social contract between a griever and the people who wish to support her, and that this contract can be broken in both ways. Part one of this two-part podcast focuses on the people who want to support. Kelsey says there are five rules to empathize by. First, back off, Mr. Fix-It. When somebody has a problem, we're really trained to fix it, right? We're paid to fix problems. Uh, We feel... Uh, worthy when we fix problems. But when someone's in a difficulty and we're trying to at first fix their problems, we think then that they have asked us to fix their problems. And okay, you've expressed you're in some pain. You've just had a miscarriage. You've learned you have infertility or that your relative is sick. My first charge to this problem is to fix it. Take a step back, support giver. So I have this thing I call all about me syndrome. 
And it's like a virus that we all suffer from. It is all about us. Swooping in, filling time, trying to shed light on the meta problem. What happens is the person winds up talking about what you think is interesting to hear. And it diverts them from talking about what they really want to share. And our questions can drive conversations in directions that were not intended by the person sharing their news. And although we do have the best of intentions, Kelsey's research with more than 900 grieving people says that trying to fix things can undermine a person's psychological sense of self-efficacy, that feeling that she has the power to do something for herself. It can deflate rather than inflate a grieving person. So how can we offer support without taking her efficacy away? This is rule number two, three whole seconds. To the extent that we can recognize these all about me syndrome symptoms and hold back and do what we're all told to do, but which is so hard to actually practice, and that is listen. But not just listen, really listen. Like almost awkward silence listen. Kelsey recommends letting the griever finish a sentence and then waiting three whole seconds before responding. Three whole seconds. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. Yep. Very often they will fill that time with whatever else they want to say about it. Now, don't worry if you find yourself rushing through a conversation or cutting someone off because you're nervous and you feel out of your emotional empathy depth. It happens to us all. Grief is a minefield. But here's another rule to live by. Number three, be forthcoming. So, for example, when Kelsey's friend Michelle was diagnosed with breast cancer, Kelsey knew she couldn't just wait for a phone call. I was more forceful in saying, I'm here, I want to come. And proactive saying, I can come today, making it super specific. What time is your appointment? (laughs) She knows to do this from experience. Even five years ago, she wouldn't have thought to do something so bold. I wouldn't have seen any of my value that I could play in that situation unless Michelle had named it for me. I wouldn't have known that I could insert myself as one of her five to ten core care people and know the needs that come up around this. Drive you to chemo, sit with you through chemo, take care of your dog, do your laundry, sit and watch reality TV with you, surprise you with flowers. Uh, I would have instead waited for her to ask something of me, which really only happens like 15% of the time. Mostly we have to just offer something and um, offer it at the time when it's needed or offer it with no concern if it's needed or not, but with the understanding it's what you could give. This is obviously more relevant for people who are in their immediate environment, but what can the extended network do? Rule four, do what you can. Gifts like flowers and surprise um, 
whoopee cushions for visitors to your hospital room or whatever it is, but that really help breathe air into the situation um, are, are really valuable. All of these rules imply a level of intimacy that may feel a little like you're overstepping the relationship. But really, how much trouble is it to just reach out and touch someone? I mean, as we've adopted the internet, our extended network has inflated. We have more acquaintances now than we've ever had, those people who know what's going on in our lives. This makes rule number four even more relevant. I'll give you a personal example. When I was caring for my dad as he was dying of lymphoma, I found myself totally out of my depth in a city where I was separated from my nearest and my dearest, and I was slowly losing it. But posting a status update about the difficult times I was having as a caregiver returned words of support from people who knew all too well what I was going through or were able to empathize. And here I'm talking about people I'd honestly not thought about unless snippets of their lives had crossed by my feed. Still, that digital lifeline and the kindness of these virtual strangers, that was essential to my belief that I thought I could do it. I have never heard from anybody that social media was a bad thing. We can show support by just being present for that person through links or gifts or songs, pictures, words of support and love. These little moments remind us that we aren't alone. But this is a weird new social horizon and one that inspires the empathizers rule number five, don't overinflate a Facebook friend. One pitfall of social media is that it it can tend to flatten relationships in people's lives. The poster who is on Facebook all the time checking in with this person on social media about how they're doing or just giving them props or support can on social media appear even more intimate or closer to that person who's in that difficult situation than their very best friend who actually isn't relying on social media. They may be there on Facebook, but are they there cleaning her bedsheets? Are they there washing her dishes? Are they transporting her kids? Are they, you know, all those kinds of practical questions that come up. Are they there to hear about her fears of dying or for fears for her kids? Now don't let that stop you from sending silly cat videos but maybe also go a little further to make the connection more physical. Those whoopee cushions, the food, the flowers. And more importantly, don't assume that there is someone there to drive them to appointments. If you can, offer. And that leads us nicely to the role of the griever. It seems kind of heartless to expect them to hold up a social contract when they are in the midst of freefall, but Kelsey found in a way that had nothing to do with her research hypotheses, that the other half holds the secret to what makes people truly resilient. I'm Alex Kratoski. Thank you to this week's guest, Dr. Kelsey Crow. The program was mixed by Katie McMurrin, The Sting, composed by Ryan Harper. We are back next time with the second part of our doubleheader. See you then.